back a little bit late but we're here we're here to discuss well this is the final part of the middle section of this year's reading club talking about legitimation crisis uh, reviewing Habermas's book which we've done over the past three episodes and now we're uh, gonna extrapolate a little bit George yeah so fourth episode um, what these usually involve is us kind of going through all of the thematic listener questions we've got over the course of uh, reading the book revisiting some of the questions that we were maybe unable to solve or, or just didn't care to discuss further at that point. Um, and I guess reflecting also on what we what we may have learnt uh, whilst doing the book. And I think for me particularly, um, basically this book is extremely timely and I've started reading um, Alex Kalinikos's The New Age of Cat- Catastrophe, which is another book on, on crisis. Um, and yeah, just comparing the two is very worthwhile. Um, in terms of style, in terms of focus, in terms of theoretical models and, and political consequences um, as well. Because it does definitely seem like we are living in an age of crisis, polycrisis, permacrisis, catastrophe, but we'll unpick some of these terms. So yeah, I mean, let's just dive straight into it. One of the, I guess, one of the things that we returned to again and again whilst discussing this was Habermas's basic, basic model of how crises work or how crises happen um, in liberal, organized, and neoliberal capitalism. So, what, yeah, what was this account? Do we still find it compelling now that we've, it's cooled a little bit, perhaps? You know, you've, you've read it and then you, you kind of let it sit for a little while and come back to it. Yeah. So, what was his model of how crises happen and was it compelling? Well, I guess the, you know, you, you, it's very much stuck with me on rereading it and, and delving into it properly really trying to understand it um, as we have done over the past couple of months. It's been very rewarding. I keep, you know, the book's kind of living rent-free in my head, as the kids say. I don't know why that's a stupid way to put it. Um, in fact, it was Does that quite mean a, that you're with quite you a mean lot Habermas. about it. You mean but, Habermas is living rent-free in your head, not the book? Well, uh, the, the, the content the of the book... The book can't live rent-free. The person lives rent-free. Well, importantly, nothing mm-hmm. is rent-free today. In, so, you know, that we live in increasingly rentierist times, which is to, really to the point because as much as it's... Um, I think the book is really impactful. It's like, damn, I wish he could resolve the problems of today, the neoliberal crisis, and not just of the Keynesian Fordist crisis, um, the previous one. So um, I guess there's that for, to start off with. Um, and then I think just the as a sort of general idea, which sticks with you having read it is, you know, in terms of breaking things down in terms of economic, social, and political crisis, the different types of crises that afflict those separate spheres and how in a way crisis can be leveraged from one area into the other, how an economic crisis can become a political crisis as a way of resolving economic crises. Um, Stuff like that, I think is very powerful. Phil. Yeah. I, um, is his account compelling? So the way in which it was presented, um, 
the way in which it was kind of presented in the undergraduate context, which I first encountered it, is that there are these kinds of uh, crypto totalitarian social systems that are based on instrumental rationality. They're associated with the market and the state, and they colonize the life world, which is this um, kind of deep reservoir of uh, meaning and, I don't know, like cuddly friendliness and non-instrumental connection, and that this kind of realm is kind of colonized by these so-called subsystems that are constantly kind of encroaching and annexing it, and as they keep on annexing and encroaching, they, um, you know, this kind of reservoir of meaning dries up with the result that they cease to function because they're, they need kind of, they're cannibalizing effectively their basis of their own source of, uh, of uh, functioning, these market and state systems, because when they kind of take over the life world in its entirety, they have nothing left to feed on. And that is just so far from, I suppose, the way I understand it now, which is in a much more dialectical, or I understand that Habermas's account of it at least is much more dialectical, which is to based on internal contradictions within these various kind of social spheres. I'm not, I don't think it hangs together as coherently as it might do, but the basic account that the that organized capitalism implicates social crisis in a very different way to the era of liberal capitalism. That seems to me to be a, um, a profound, you know, a profound insight. And one I think whose relevance to the era of neoliberal capitalism is, um, is at least to my mind, you know, hasn't been really properly grasped until recently. Um, and it makes what? sense. Yeah, go on. No, I was just going to ask what you what exactly you mean by that because well, yeah, it may, just check yeah, on the same in, page. in this sense, so that the that era of kind of organized capitalism or you know whatever you want to call it, that kind of of the um, between say roughly nineteen forty five and nineteen seventy five in the developed world, that when that era kind of breaks down and enters into crisis. Um, which is what he's essentially describing, I think. He's talking about the breakdown of that era. That neoliberal capitalism is organized in such a way that it doesn't, it's highly kind of, it highly regulates and organizes capitalism, but it's constructed in such a way that it avoids implicating um, political systems in crisis. And so that is the kind of that. Um, disentanglement or disarticulation or whatever kind of fancy word I suppose you could use for it. That's only clearer to me now um, after having read the book about the uh, kind of ability to differentiate these different eras in modern capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think there is, <clears throat> I mean, just to draw the two points that you're making together that it is almost like um yeah, you're always addressing the last crisis, right? And and never the, never the current one. And there is definitely something about the account that Pabamas gives, which is, you know, of course of its time. Like it is the the, the crisis of, of Keynesian capitalism, as you basically put it, Alex. And that, you know, how could he have seen, foreseen that the, um, <clears throat> the kind of the next round of crises would be um, due to some of the things which, as you were saying, Phil, have, have changed um, between organized capitalism and the earlier liberal Keynesian um, version. So, yeah, I mean, I think for me, did I find his account compelling? There were certainly some points which I thought 
were more interesting and you know in us discussing it definitely got more out of it but overall the model of society is just too schematic and abstract and all-encompassing and I think there's yeah there is something to be said for that and I you know I had have talked about how much I value the tables that are in the book in previous episodes but overall it just seems too at some point where you're hoping here's going to be some content and you can apply it to today it's still you know one or two steps away from doing that and one of those steps is probably the language being so slippery or Mm. german sociologies or whatever it would be um but some of it is just that the i think the the models remain remain too abstract so cool so we basically if that's the first you know the crisis it's always a crisis i mean we're going to talk about this in a bit more detail like what is the the nature of the contemporary crisis but Mm. maybe crisis isn't crisis itself oh no Mm. don't Mm. don't don't do that Mm. That's... Well, we had that. We no, it was a good yeah. point. It was made by one of our guests, Albena's Manova talked about the crisis of crisis, by which she meant, which sounded kind of overly meta, but it was an important point, and we mentioned it before, that it's, um, you know, the classical expectation that there is some kind of fundamental resolution to a social pathology is over. Yeah, yeah. We'll I guess on, I guess. come on to this. I, George informs yeah. me. I'd, yeah, but I guess, you know, that you're right. There is something in that, like the crisis um, within that concept, there's a solution. And I think this is probably the, you know, my starting point for all of this is, yeah, there's a legitimation crisis, but kind of, so what doesn't necessarily resolve itself? Anyway, um, to move on. Um, yeah, the other thing I guess that I did want to ask the two of you about is, you know, we, we've read a few of these books um, now over the course of the podcast reading club um over the last few years um what yeah what what sort of i'm not going to say like how have you deployed this learning in everyday conversations <laughs> to dazzle your friends and family but like you know what stuck with you what kind of um nuggets of 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 information and wisdom can you extract from this to to deploy in the next thing you're going to write or whatever well I, I think for me is i mean maybe rephrasing it in in my own words or the words that kind of have stuck with me um is uh, the question of buffers and what allows shocks to be absorbed. So um, this, I think, is very clear in part part two, I think, especially of the book, but also part three. Um, you know, Habermas is talking about the, Keyn- the crisis of the Keynesian state, and there you had Keynesian buffers, you know, famously, which um, made the age of boom and bust kind of to a certain extent redundant, or so it was believed, um, but instead created a political crisis in the political realm, a crisis of rationality, which actually becomes a crisis of legitimacy and also motivation crisis socially. Um, again, worth referring back to episode two um, of this section, um, if you're, you know, for clarification on that. Um, but anyway, I think what stuck with me is that, uh, you know, this age of Keynesian capitalism for, for Habermas, there was already a kind of riddle there. So basically economic crisis um, has been, uh, to a certain extent, absorbed by the buffers of the state. Um, but that means that you get this political crisis, a, cris- a crisis of legitimacy. And you, it's not entirely clear how that plays out. If you take that model and you go, okay, well, what if, but what if you actually do have economic crisis? Well, then really the shit hits the fan for the regime, surely, right? Um, and yet that's kind of what we've had. We've had economic crisis, a return of, of, of serious economic crisis. And yet, the legitimacy crisis hasn't really exploded in the way that the theory would predict. 
And Habermas already has, to a certain extent, the explanation for this. And this is civic privatism, um, that I think all capitalist regimes ultimately have that as a, as a buffer, as a sort of reserve, which is that if people um, expect little and don't demand that the public realm provides for them in some way um, or meets their expectations of what they want from life, that if those demands aren't being made, people withdraw into the private realm this, things can kind of carry on as they are. This is why, if, to a certain extent, you don't yeah. have revolution, <laughs> to put it uh, bluntly, and also to refer to an episode we did with um, with Vivek Chibber, you know, effectively where he provides more kind of analytical under, uh, understanding and, and answer to the question of why there's no revolution. Anyway, that's a bit that should be stuck with me. Kind of civic privatism is this thing which um, increases actually through the neoliberal period and is a way of absorbing, in a way, the, the shocks of, of the return of economic crisis. Yeah, no, that idea of, you know, citizens becoming basically only able to passively withhold the right to kind of, or passively withhold acclamation. Um, yeah, and the link of that to the, mm. you know, all of that other stuff that Phil was talking about earlier, that kind of structural depoliticization of the, of the public realm, which is some of the other things Habermas has written about. Yeah, no, I think that that's stuck with me as well. But Phil, what about you? What's your... What's your uh, ret- what have you retained, if anything, or has it all just no. seeped out of you, like um, knowledge diffusing into the world, or something like that? You can ask. Really, I don't know. It's really weird and vaguely disgusting, George. Okay. Um, no, what I was thinking. So, I mean, I suppose there are two points. Um, one is his account of the degradation of democratic theory. And how that becomes kind of bound up with um, the performance and functioning of democracy itself. So how he says a certain kind of set of um, a certain a certain um, theoretical understanding of democracy functions in the same way that theories of political economy functioned in the nineteenth century. I thought that was a very good point that stayed with me. But maybe more profoundly was his account of the um, and I know we'll talk about this a bit more. But his account of the degradation of bourgeois individuality um and specifically what he says is how how it's impossible to verify outside of these kinds of um cultural slash intellectual accounts of uh, you know individuals adrift or um, without moorings something which can't be grasped in traditional metrics of social science and so on and so I was dismissive. I mean, we talked about this in a previous session, and I was dismissive at the time. But I, it's a challenge which has kind of stayed with me because it is, you know, it seems to me there, there'd be something there which you could genuinely mine, both intellectually and politically, if you could, if you could show to people that the stakes of, um, or some of the stakes of our current social system were the way in which it undermines um, individuality. Um, and that was a result of the organization of capitalism. Um, you know, that seems to me like it would be something important and meaningful, but it's something which is very difficult to do outside of the kind of grand, I don't know, you know, the kind of grand thousand page novels of the last century. You know, yeah. it's not something which is kind of presented or can be made or illustrated. Um Aside from perhaps, you know, talking about civil liberty, but even talking about civil liberty seems, you know, it's something which is so um, 
it's either kind of the preserve of uh, kind of kooky libertarians or it's something which is already kind of so familiar, the constant kind of degradation and assault on civil liberty that it's already become, you know, kind of an embedded feature of public life and public discussion that is simply taken for granted mm. rather than for, being, you know, the people well, ask, people often ask about civil liberties, you defend them, you go, yeah, but what, for, what do you, what do you want to yeah. do with it? You know, and that already, so I think yeah. rather than taken as like a, a sharp dividing line between state and individual or state and civil society, it's this kind of vague, gray contested zone where it's accepted, you know, that the kind of the state makes, um, makes inroads, sometimes they withdraw and it's all kind of vague and diffuse and, and civic privatism is part of that. Paradoxically, the civic privatism is part of the liquidation of individuality. And yeah. again, that's kind of a paradox or a contradiction that seems um, counterintuitive on the surface, but in fact makes perfect sense. Well, and, and I think maybe just at a, at, a, at a more general level, I think a lot of the things that, you know, Habermas is talking about presume a sort of pulley. You know, you're, you, you, if you push one level up, the other level will go down, right? So um, if you have economic crisis being managed, um, that means that political crisis may increase, right? And these kind of things operate in, in um, opposite directions. Kind what of I, a to me, to you. Sure. Dynamic. Sure, if, if, if uh, you want. You might not get that reference, the Chuckle um, Brothers. But it's not, a, yeah, not, not especially, <laughs> doesn't especially illuminate the discussion. Um, but um, that kind of two things can go down at once, effectively, um, to the point that Phil was making, you know, the social and the individual can both kind of recede at the same time, um, rather than see them as in conflict, um, where you have either you have a lot of society and collective, and then you have less individualism, or you have more individualism, and society or collectivism recedes, it's like, actually, you can have both, you can have less of both, which is what we have now. And it's, it's, I think, very difficult to communicate that I think uh, the, <laughs> the fact that I haven't really communicated very well, maybe is testament to that. No, I think, um, I mean, that that point about you know, society and individuality being mutually reinforcing, or in this case, mutually de-enforcing if they um, are both evaporating. Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, one of the things, I don't, this kind of sounds like I'm doing Habermas down, but one of the things that really stuck with me was um, this Adorno quote that he, that I, um, we talked about in a previous episode, and yeah, this idea that it's too optimistic to think that the individual is being altogether liquidated. Instead, this individual is kind of dragged along dead, neutralized, powerless. So there isn't, mm. you know, there is a possibility of the the death of the bourgeois individual without any, you know, any necessary replacement. Um, you can have just the continued undermining, hollowing out um, for all the reasons that both of the two of you were talking about. Um, and yeah, that's kind of pessimistic, but it does also feel like it's accurate. I mean, that that's, you know, maybe we're kind of coming at this from, from different angles, but yeah, that, that sort of, you know the absence of the of the kind of functioning private uh, public sphere, and at the same time the the eroding of the individual. Yeah, this this seems to be one one aspect which Habermas really um, puts his finger on with relation to contemporary life. So another thing that we this was one thing that we kind of uh, we talked about a little bit in um, episode two, but we didn't fully finish it. And we said we would come back to it. So, you know, we should. Um, and actually, that's kind of appropriate, this work ethic that we're going to display here for this particular question. And this was about rise and grind. So if if, if listeners 
don't know about this, then maybe they should be doing their homework and working a bit harder in general. So this is the idea of the grind set or LinkedIn lunatics or just these people who will post their their schedule online at what time they get up and how hard they work and how successful they are. And it's kind of a hyper caffeinated version of the product and ethic, I think is, you know, one one way to put it. Anyway, one of the things that we did want to explore a little bit further is how this is related to this idea of kind of this um, pre-bourgeois reservoir of, I guess, moral sentiments and kind of goodwill. This is the stuff that the capitalism cannibalizes, this kind of, um, as um, Habermas puts it, um, residues of tradition that have been undermined and worn out through uh, during the development of capitalism. So is there a way to explain this rise and grind, like very contemporary manifestation um through reference to pre bourgeois moral norms um i'm not entirely sure i i follow the question because i mean the poor pre bourgeois moral norms might have been something like kind of deference right and and so that kind of was carried into kind of capitalist modernity um and so it made sure that the you know people were kind of the masses at large were deferential towards their social betters and then were kind of uh, revolting um and i mean i think there's there's probably more to it than just that um does rise and grind draw on some sort of pretty bourgeois um moral norms i think i think it's exceptionally well i guess it's a question i was going to say it's very post bourgeois in a way but it also as you say it it seems to have some similarities kind of rise and kind of grind set have similarities to the kind of protestant ethic um, although I'm not sure there's the same role of that saving plays, right? So the Protestant work ethic was about kind of accumulating and saving, um, and w- without ever really, um, kind of cashing that in. I mean, supposedly it's to invest, right? Um, but you're never going to like consume that personally. Rise and grind or the kind of whatever grind set, Sigma grind set, I don't know, whatever this stuff is. Um, it doesn't, that, I don't think there's, um, I don't think that you know saving doesn't play the same role there it's just production and productivity productiveness for its own sake um performatively even which i think is different you know you're you want to be seen to be being productive not just being productive and saving um as in the old like uh you know protestant work ethic and it um i think there's maybe a little bit more role for consumption as a consequence as well um so you might be um you might be work, you know, you might be working, waking up at four in the morning to do a hundred sit-ups, um, but you're also going to be kind of ostentatiously consuming. I think probably at the at the same time. So, I, I don't know. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's so. I guess you could say. I mean, I think you're right, Alex, that consumption kind of plays a different role. But I think the old, you know, the old Protestant ethic was also ostentatious precisely in the primness that had to be displayed you know mm. like in the um in the dutch uh, you know the kind of dutch paintings that i suppose classically exhibit the protestant ethic um austerity kind of or austere kind of fashion and restraint and reserve all of these things had to be projected to be um made meaningful um whereas now like you say it's kind of, and there's no kind of hope of redemption you know it's not clear like who are you doing it for your kind of 5 a.m. yoga classes before you meditate and journal and then kind of, you know, attend a kind of two-hour online meeting before you 
I don't know, go do something else, you know? So that's not clear, but I, yeah, you're right. I think there is a kind of a role for ostentatious consumption. It's more bizarre because it's less connected to any overhang of any kind of uh, religious tradition, I suppose. Um, yeah, that's a good and point. Connected to it as well is, um, I, I, I think, I mean, I don't know, but I suspect there's something to it which is different to the savings ethic, you know, because the whole point of the Protestant ethic is that it, um, you're accumulating, right? Whereas the rise and grind emerges in the era of low interest rates. So there's no kind of um, advantage to saving or accumulating particularly, right? There's no kind of structural incentive to accumulate as a, as a kind of uh, self-regulating productive individual. Um, there is strong incentives to borrow, Right to borrow and to spend and to present your wacky new kind of startup idea before the panel of Silicon mm. Valley investors. So there's yeah. a contrast there between the relationship between the individual accumulation and saving, which is different. I don't have an you know a complete answer to that, but it seems to me it's important. Well, I mean, it yeah. might be. We always talk about differences in capitalism or differences in history, right? How things are different. Um, sometimes it's worth emphasizing continuities, like that this is something which is consistent within capitalism, um, and maybe this is one of those points to to do that. No, but it's not because, like I'm saying, you have an incentive to invest previously, right? You save and you get your money through the interest rate, right? Whereas there is no interest, at least until, you know, the era of the rise and grind before the rise in interest well, rates, not there just, was no incentive to save. It's not just interest. I mean, it's not just interest. In the, it's not just about putting your money in the bank and gaining interest. It's about, I mean, accumulating capital, having enough capital to then invest um, and put that capital to work. Um, you know, think about like the 19th century capitalist. Um, I, I, yeah, but I, yeah, but I, you I, wouldn't, only the very rich can do that, Right. It's I more, mean, it's, it's the rise and grind guy mm. borrows. I mean, that's the point, right? The real that's rise true. and grind yeah, guy, yeah, the LinkedIn yeah. lunatic, right? He borrows from the venture capitalist rather than saving kind of primly to get the down payment and the retirement after a long and productive kind of middle management role. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the Calvinist would, would be austere and, and, and not, um, yeah, not, not consume, not spend things because... That was again another sign of, you know, worldly success was a sign that you're part of the the elect. And the rise and grind guy, it's not always a guy, but the rise and grind guy. I was just kind of thinking about this. Like if if that kind of social type emerged even <clears throat> more strongly after the kind of global financial crisis, then it's almost like we're all we're all damned. Like there is no being part of the elect, being the part of the, you know, the chosen. We've already suffered this kind of uh this sign from above that we're not part of the chosen. So, you so have maybe, two but maybe, but maybe that's it. So, who are you demonstrating to? The classic Calvinist thing is to God, right? To kind of an inner, you know, you're being kind of observed by a supernatural, an almighty kind of omniscient supernatural being. Whereas the rise and grind guy, he does the near the near Protestant ethic for the rise and grind guy is undertaken. So you can become an, you know, you're an entrepreneur, kind of everyone is going to be an entrepreneur. And the idea is that you would take your idea to somebody who has money and power and can sort your life out for you. They'll give you a huge wadge of cash and you will take your wonderful kind of idea for, um, you know, a startup app or some nonsense, you know, like yoga for kittens or something like that. Alex would buy that, right? Totally, Alex yeah, would definitely buy totally that. Be into that yeah. Yeah, you'd buy that, you'd get loads of money, and then you can go and show off what you consume on Instagram. So yeah. 
I suppose it's oriented around the venture capitalists. That's who it's kind of, you know, the rise and grind is organized towards that. That that big other rather than rather than God. Yeah, I, I mean, I did ask this question and actually, you know, maybe we've moved a little bit far away from, from Habermas in, in answering it. But certainly, you know, there, there is that question of what, what are the moral sentiments required for capitalism to persist is there a you know is it a, is it a kind of this reservoir and cannibalism model or is it a bit more dialectical than that so i was also thinking that the you know you have two choices today do you become a linkedin lunatic or a quiet quitter because that is the other way that you can you can kind of respond to this you can yeah. be like well you know fuck the venture capitalists and this is all a you know a game that doesn't really have any inherent legitimacy so i might as well just either get yes what is it a lazy girl job um, and just like do the bare minimum or I'll just like, uh, no, I'm all right. I'll just kind of rise um, and grind. So rise and grind. Bother. I think, I think you're right. Rise and grind was the era of a kind of pre lockdown and post lockdown. It's, um, kind of, uh, goblin mode working from home, like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, you or quiet quitting, you know, you kind of, uh, goblin mode. So for, for listeners who do, Phil, what is goblin mode? Can you explain for listeners who don't know what this is? I'm sure our listeners know what goblin mode is. Look up the hashtag. Goblin on mode is self care. Goblin mode is self care. <laughs> um, it used to be being. It used to be called like being a little bit messy, and now it has a a name. So just being a bit yeah. of a slob and lazy, and just ordering takeaway and sitting in your pajamas and uh, playing video games and just not giving a shit really. And listening no, but, to podcasts. No, but you move. But you like have that. your. You know, you have your profile up on the on the um, Zoom meeting so that everyone still thinks that you're participating and listening and occasionally you move your cursor or type something into the chat so people still think you're paying attention. Yes, yeah, so I think that's the new, that would be the new model. Hmm. I think it's important things- with relation I- to Habermas only in as much as um, I think Habermas um, can't account for the rise of a new Protestant ethic, right? Which is kind of distinctly um, secularized and globalized, you know, not restricted to um, advanced industrial societies and whatnot. Well, yeah, I mean, we're on to motivation crisis, right? Um, this is uh, fundamentally what we're discussing. I think that is it. Either you're, the only kind of ideology left is that of the entrepreneur, um, as Phil has been depicting, we've been discussing, or you um, don't buy anymore. Because if there's no public solution, if there's no kind of political hope, then the only um, either you participate in in kind of in the system and try to make it just for yourself in a very kind of narrow individual way, um, or you or you drop out. And I think that seems to be the, um, of you know, in a very cynical world, you know, both options are kind of cynical. I think, right? Um, and I think we're going to come on to discuss cynical ideology in just a second. Yeah, exactly. Um, this was one of the themes which um, was a topic from our reading club last year, which did come up a little bit in in discussion of this book um, in some of the um, previous episodes, either directly or, or indirectly. And yeah, this is basically the idea that captain, capitalism doesn't really promise anything anymore and even kind of points out with a, you know, a, a wink and a nod how little is being promised, um, which cannot but presumably have some pretty serious consequences for the contemporary meaning of an idea like legitimacy so we're um you know we've we've gone through um the whole book now so we we kind of um we picked this up or or we started this discussion previously but yeah cynical ideology is this is legitimacy today something that people don't really value 
in the sense of basically like you're a mug if you expect the the world to be legitimate in any way instead you should just realize that this is a game and you know you're not really going to get anything the more you expect the the more uh, the more you hope for the more disappointed you'll be so just manage your expectations and just kind of accept it and just you know have a bit of a wry smile um and to you know operate with an air of detached amusement from it all yeah i i so i i'm not sure the way you put it is exactly right in so far as the legitimacy is not something that one would locate within like the individual subject within the person who like cares or doesn't care about legitimacy but it's a kind of relational question and you know at a large social scale a structural one um but i think it's i think the answer anyway would be yeah legitimacy in a way seems to not matter in our period because you can have this legitimacy crisis the bottom fall out of political legitimacy and nothing really happens um things become politics becomes increasingly dysfunctional increasingly personalized um the boundaries between kind of professional you know the professional the objective the impersonal um blur very much with the with the private the personal um you know kind of narrow interests and so on um effectively what you know what people talk about it as corruption um which increases the the sense of like delegitimation but still kind of nothing nothing really budges um and i, I think cynicism cynical ideology does play a, a an important role there um in in saying yeah not just um you have low expectations and you don't really care but you can kind of almost that that the state already incorporates the critique of itself um into what it says it's like oh of course we're not actually going to deliver people kind of go yeah well that's what we've been saying all along right and then that it just mm. perpetuates itself and everyone's just standing there kind of going well no one's really expecting anything um you know that this is a, a point which really was hammered home to me in reading this book i think i've made this point on a, on a previous episode but i, I want to restate it which is the a society of low expectations it's a term that I became aware of probably in my early mid twenties, um, but never really kind of understood it, kind of its full theoretical heft. I think until rereading this book, um, of what it what that actually means or what um, what role that plays when, according to the Habermas recipe, as it were, um, you know, if you suddenly have this like leg- economic crisis and legitimacy and no legitimacy, presumably the regime somehow falls, and that isn't what has happened and and um the reason for that is is low expectations i guess yeah i mean what i was thinking about this is that one difference between habermas's day or when habermas was writing this and and today is that i guess this concept of legitimacy today basically is like an individual level the concept if that's the right way to put it like you kind of um like a good political sociologist you ask people some survey questions you kind of tot it all up and then you say yes tick this is legitimate or cross no people don't like this they don't have the right expectations or whatever they just don't they don't like your system so you're illegitimate but i think what habermas or his whole method is to treat this as a i guess a system level concept so there is not some kind of aggregation of individual saying yes kind of holding their thumbs up or thumbs down and i don't know which way round is which there's a lot of um disagreement around like roman emperors thumbs up or thumbs down which one was was killing the gladiators or whatever but um yeah that's a bit of a side point probably 
Um, so the, actually what I was saying, um, was, yeah, so it, it's something for Habermas, which would be kind of, I guess, only, um, accessible or specifically referring to something, which is a whole kind of domain of life or a whole sphere. Whereas today it's like, yeah, we think of individual, um, individuals or kind of cynical ideology as like individuals responding to promises, um, not you know, and this is partly because of all these intermediating institutions that we've talked about many times on this podcast, no, no longer being able to raise the question of legitimacy at a structural or systemic level. Instead, it's, you know, seemed to be individuals saying yes or no. Well, and I mean, Jizek tries to provide an answer to this, you know, quite pithily by saying, if the old way of, of understanding ideology is something that masks people, you know, that blinds them, um, you know, think of like religion, typically, um, that that was you know forgive them they know not what they do right that those subjects didn't realize that they were playing along with the system um by believing in jesus christ whatever um it's actually with cynical ideology and kind of the postmodern era is uh, they know what they 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 know very well what they do but they do it anyway right so people are don't buy any buy into any kind of public ideology anymore the state doesn't really bother proffering any public ideology but they do it anyway, which is to say they continue, people continue participating in, in society anyway, which shows kind of at a deeper level for Zizek that ideology is not just something that is in one's head, but is uh, all about what, how, you know, how you behave, what you do, um, institutionalized practices and so on. And so because um, people somehow keep participate, keep participating in capitalism, um, they, um, they kind of, that gives that, um, reveals the fact that they kind of in deep down still kind of buy into it because of a, of a lack of alternative. Um, now, I don't mean to say yeah, that... Yeah, his claim yeah. is it's stronger than ever. Yeah. So that you're more, the people who think, you know, the those who think they're emancipated um, or are just cynical, they uh, they don't, you know, they don't fall for the advertiser. They're so much smarter than all the drones who support the latest thing or whatever. They're the ones who are actually the most... Um, you know, the most uh, complicit. Duped. Yeah. Yeah, the most duped. I mean, he uses the example from Václav Havel, right, of the the um, the, reg- the guy in the old Soviet-backed or Soviet-dominated Czechoslovakia who um, would, uh, you know, wasn't a supporter of the regime but participated in all the mandated national festivals and put up the right poster and the right slogan at the right time. And in doing so, even though they were kind of not a supporter of the regime, they actually facilitated its public functioning. And he uses that as a model for how, um, you know, how kind of people participate in modern liberal democracy in the same way. And so I think that kind of, I'm not sure, I don't think that's quite within Habermas's ken. I don't think the theory, or at least the framework that he presents in the book can stretch quite that far to incorporate that level of, um, you know, that kind of level of uh, dialectical kind of tension and flexibility that you see in Zizek's in, in the par- the ability to kind of absorb paradox the way that Zizek can. I don't quite think mm. Habermas's theory stretches quite that far. Yeah, it's not very it's not very paradox friendly. That is the one thing you can say against tables and rigorous kind of abstract formulations of ty- types of society. They do tend to be either in this part or that part of the table.
cool so if cynical ideology was one of the the kind of general thematic points that we kept on coming back to and again and again another is or you know definitely was the individual so in the first episode we discussed this question of individuation and state power and specifically there was a passage that we um were left scratching our heads on a little bit um and this was as follows with growing individuation the immunization of socialized individuals against the decisions of differentiated control center seems to gain strength the normative structures become effective as a kind of self-inhibiting mechanism via the imperatives of power expansion and this was actually suggested by a listener so thank you for putting us on the spot and making us uh, work um has the rest of the book clarified this at all where do individuals today sit in relation to this to state power under a legitimation crisis well i mean you know we struggled with that um that quotation you know that section from the from the book in trying to explain out what that means and it's 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 hefty you know um but i think one thing that we, we can say is that um Habermas, I think, is there referring to growing individuation in his time, right? He's talking about like in the 1970s. So this is the wave of the the, the long boom, the um, entry of people into consumer society, um, working class affluence, the ability to kind of individuate yourself, um, often through consumption, uh, was increasing. Um, and I, so I think that's that's one factor that he's um, referring to. I don't know if you guys want to take on. Um, from there, because so these socialized in, these socialized individuals are immunized against def- decisions of the control center, um, and that seems to grow with with, well, he uh, says, with strength. Yeah, he says it seems to grow with strength. Hmm. Um, so he says, you know, this idea that growing individuation, the things you described, Alex, civic privatism, affluence, what have you. Um, it seems that they have kind of uh, greater capacity to stand back or to withstand the, you know, the decisions which are made by power centers, whether those be economic or political, I suppose. The normative structures become effective as a kind of self-inhibiting mechanism. These are the imperatives of power expansion, of power expansion. He's talking, I mean, hmm. the sense of the language is that he's drawing attention to superficiality. It's how something appears, but it is not actually the case. Yeah, I mean, it just makes me think about, you know, today, what are the mechanisms of social control and what are the recourses that individuals have against um, these kind of levers of social control? And growing individuation... um, to the extent that this was the case in 2020, I don't think was really a, a kind of a bulwark against kind of the uh, differentiated control center. So I'm, I'm here talking about what uh, some um, insightful writers have called uh, authoritarianism without authority. This idea that, yeah, there is no um, kind of centralized or const- there's no political construction through representation of of authority and you would think that this makes kind of individuals pretty um robust against you know any kind of authoritarian uh, mechanism of social control but in fact that's not the case because in, without those mechanisms of representation there is you know there is nothing but the kind of authoritarian liberalism that we have today in much of western europe so that would be my sort of I'm probably reading a bit too much into into it, but I think you're allowed to you're allowed to do that if it sparks the right sort of thoughts. Um, so yeah, well, the... uh, 
So, yeah, go on, Alex. And I, I think I, there's a lot of discussion, I mean, around the time Habermas was writing this, and especially after, about the reflexive individual, um, about the kind of enlightened citizen who was able to um, not just follow um, almost by rote the practices that their elders had set down in terms of always voting for the same political party, um, just accepting, you know, being deferential towards what the state says or um, buying official ideologies, but, you know, being much more individuated and you as an individual are like a critical consumer. And I don't, and and obviously later on that becomes kind of ethical consumerism and all st- and stuff like that. But it wasn't just that. It's about in relation to, you know, voting behavior and, and whatever else that this reflexive citizen kind of creates themselves and recreates themselves and is much more of a dynamic individual actor than um their than their forebears were. Um and this is yeah. all post post nineteen sixties. That's something that happens then. So the idea, I think, would be that this uh being is much more um, critical with regard to state power, with regard to what the state does, um, with regard to nationalism and other ideological appeals. The reality, I think, as we have um, obviously come to discover, is that this person is is very much to the contrary, not so immune from public ideologies, but is cynical and therefore actually the biggest dupe of all, you know, to, to refer to what Phil was saying, you know, that the non-ideological citizen um, is, is the kind of, um, is the, is the most blinded in a way by ideology. Um, and it's someone who um, kind of just goes along, right? And so to tie that together with the example that you were giving of, of kind of the pandemic, the people might not really believe in kind of big ideologies and big ideological claims about nation, about um, socialism, about religion, about whatever else. Um, they're kind of just cynically going about in, the, in their lives. They don't really buy into the stuff. But when the state says jump, people jump. They don't really believe in jumping, but they're just going to jump anyway, because what, what the fuck else are you going to do? Right. And um, I think that kind of shed some light or is a way of kind of discussing this idea that um, growing individuation um, did not lead to a more robust individual who is um, able to stand up to the state, but on the contrary, rather just kind of goes along with things. Yeah, no, I think there's something in that. If I, if I'm not mistaken, there was a like nineties and noughties, there was this idea of the critical citizen. So the critical citizen was somebody who appeared to be a bit detached from, from politics, but some, some people said, well, actually, no, this is kind of a good thing because the more critical citizens are, um, the more reflexive they are. um, And the more they kind of, um, interrogate and think about politics and our political systems, this actually will have a good impact. We'll have better democracy because people will be mm. um, more expecting of kind of high quality governance and, you know, all this sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, this this is, it's yeah, it, it doesn't turn out like, like that because, you know, as I made that point before, it's not, the more that it's disintermediated that relationship between individuals and, and the state or the, the, the control centre, the um, more in many ways fragile um, it, it can become. Um, but yeah, the another thing that t- to relate to one of the other uh, topics of, of a reading club that we had, um, it seems like a little while ago now, but um, Agamben was uh, a very interesting book to read. Um, and that's obviously about emergencies. So I did want to, because we, we touched on this a couple of times but not really properly kind of spelled it out what is the difference between a crisis and an emergency and maybe even throwing in another thing what's the difference between a crisis and emergency and a catastrophe we're staring at each other blankly 
<laughs> I I I don't know. I think I mean my my answer would be maybe this is a bit simple, but that crisis is something that kind of imposes itself objectively. Um, whereas an emergency, to a certain extent, has a more subjective component in terms of it has to be declared. Um, you know, an emergency has to be declared. Uh, and you know, famous, it's like the the sovereign who, the, the, you know, the definition of the sovereign is that is the one who can kind of call an emergency. Um, but I don't know if that I don't know if that's satisfactory. Phil, are you having a a, a crisis of of thought, an emergency of thought, <laughs> a catastrophe? Uh, I suppose I'd say the the reason that we think of them as distinct is because one doesn't seem they don't seem to kind of shadow each other the way they might once have, um, you know. So you can kind you can have or an emergency doesn't seem to lead to a crisis. You seem to kind of you know the crisis or the emergency seems to be a constant rolling thing without actually. Um, precipitating the kind of uh, delegitimation that you might expect, right? If it doesn't lead to some kind of denouement. So it's, I don't have an answer to you, George. I suppose it's a half-formed or maybe even less than that thought, but there is a way in which the relationship between the two has been, I don't know, re-articulated, disconnected in some way that they don't kind of... um, they don't follow each other in the way that they might have in the past. In the past, you have a crisis, you declare emergency, you get through it or you don't. Whereas now, you know, you kind of have rolling emergency crisis that never seems to reach any kind of resolution. And so there doesn't seem to be a kind of a structural connection in the way there was in the past. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we can talk about the the kind of polycrisis or permacrisis in a, in a sec, but I guess what I was sort of driving at a little bit with this was, it just seems to me like, the or you know maybe just comparing Habermas and and um, Agamben because there's lots of other people who've written about both um, topics it seems like crisis is something to do with the with the system um, and it's almost like what is yeah objectively someone out not outside of the system but somebody's always pointing to like look at this thing that's in crisis or that thing's in crisis whereas an emergency is much more centralized and you know as you, you said Alex the it's the sovereign there is there is a, an entity that is able to formally declare an emergency capital e um and you could maybe have some some um you know well meaning and um sure this sounds really horrible and very intelligent um an analyst of some sort who would say here is the crisis point but that is a subjective judgment or a kind of an evidence um, decision. Whereas there is somebody who's at or somebody or something, some entity politically that's able to say this is an emergency. We have now entered this this state. Um, and, you know, obviously, as you were saying, Phil, there is a kind of an there's another side of the, the crisis. But, um, you know, as someone like Benjamin would say, maybe the emergency there isn't. There's a, there's a before and then there's an after, um, but there's not, you know, there's all there's a before and then there's a during of the emergency. But with a crisis, you expect the patient to make it through or to, uh, to die. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably a first, a first stab at that, but it does seem like there is, there would be something worth kind of differentiating between these different sort of, um, problems or or concepts that we have to diagnose them
So I mentioned this idea of the the poly crisis or the the, the perma crisis or or all of these sorts of things. And obviously there is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm reading, you know, the age of catastrophe, the new age of catastrophe by Alex Kalinikos at the moment. And everywhere you look, there seems to be um, a crisis. So just, I'll, I'll just quickly outline a little bit of what Kalinikos says. And then, you know, we, we could talk about particularly Adam Tooze, who's the, you know, he hasn't quite trademarked the idea of polycrisis, but certainly he, um, you know, he's probably the foremost thinker of it. So this, I think, is a fairly you know, perhaps standard, almost Marxist account that, um, that Kalinikos would give, he would say, well, you have these different levels of society, the biological, which involves productive forces, labor process, and the metabolism of nature through labor, you have the economic, this is relations of production. And this is, um, you know, the capital labor, um, uh, on one side and different capitals on another side. So exploitation and um, uh, competitive accumulation geopolitical is the level of imperialism political um, crisis which is he says it's the crisis of the extreme center and the rise of the far right may or may not agree with that and then finally the ideological and he says that, that you have race gender and um, race and gender as the terrains of contestation and his point would be well the the, the kind of the poly crisis this is a liberal view because you have these external shocks to the system and that's how it works itself through. But the Marxist approach would be, well, no, it's a, it's a catastrophe rather than a crisis because it's something to do with the internal logic of the system. It's not like accidental. It's not like contingent. It's not like things could be otherwise. It's always going to be like this. So that's the distinction between crisis and catastrophe. Um, yeah. I mean, is, is Kalinikos fair on twos there or is it a bit more complicated than that in the idea of polycrisis? I would, I think polycrisis is, a, I mean, I think it's a slightly, um, I think it tells us more about the people kind of making the designation than it does perhaps about the, you know, about the world itself. Um, and it has that kind of Tuesian, I think it has that Tuesian quality of um, drawing these kind of dazzling connections between different domains geographically economically politically sociologically and suggesting there you know well implying that there is some kind of profound connection but rather than the connection being premised on a um on a kind of underlying substantive theoretical logical relationship it's more a kind of a relationship which is posited on the basis of the knowledge of the person making the claim, you know, and, mm. you know, Adam Tews, by, to be fair to him, is entitled to draw those kinds of connections. But unfortunately, many people who kind of, uh, the Tewsians, um, who uh, kind of, or his uh, followers are perhaps, you know, in a less strong position to make those kinds of connections. So it goes something like, you know, there is like a crisis in, I don't know, Argentine grain production, that will have knock-on consequences for Ukraine's exports, which will have knock-on consequences for Russia, which will have knock-on consequences for the price of oil, which will have knock-on consequences for the global biosphere. And this all connects to like the election of a new, you know, kind of populist figure in Argentina you've never heard of. You know, it's this kind of drawing connections from assimilating and synthesizing a tremendous body of knowledge. So it's very much connected to a particular kind of model of erudition, I think, and it's very much connected to the internet age 
of thinking in those kinds of um, hyperlinked terms. Um, but it's not really doesn't really amount to a um, you know kind of uh, a theory that relates these levels in a kind of systematic and structured way. And so I think that's yeah. the difference between the model of the kind of the polycrisis and the and you know legitimation crisis or earlier kind of Marxist accounts of um, of crisis, however you might want to frame them. So I think that you know that's an important distinction. And so when people look at the world and they see polycrisis, I think what they see is like a world which is, um, you know, perhaps, you know, which is shifting and changing in ways that might not be amenable to traditional modes of intervention or response. And it seems deeply threatening, but it yeah. doesn't seem to me a kind of a, a theoretical account in the same league. Yeah, I, th I think that's really good, Phil. Uh, that's well put. And I want to build on that because my notes kind of ran along similar lines. Um, I you know, I, yeah, I think, too, as you say, Toots is very good at this and be able to draw those connections. And I think it's also um, a contribution of Marxism or, or, or kind of a characteristic of, of kind of Marxian thought that things are connected, unlike liberalism, which hives things off into um, different arena, you know, like politics has nothing to do with economics, economics has nothing to do with society has nothing to do with culture. Um, and, you know, a kind of, um, yeah, kind of a, a, a key element, I think, of the dialectical, of thinking of society dialectically is that these things are all connected. So in that regard, polycrisis seems good because it, it draws on that. But I think the reason it's popular is because we have no meta narratives. It's uh, the world seems all very confusing and falling apart and all the, all these kind of crazy turbulent things are happening on, you know, in the past, you would have been able to say, well, you know, it's capitalism, that is the crisis or, you know, some kind of being able to kind of reduce it to some, um, some kind of unique factor, which, uh, which explains why the world is chaotic. Um, because it's, it's important to remember that capitalist modernity is turbulence. It is crisis ridden. So it's not just like mm. today we have more crises. I mean, this is a, a kind of feature of, of modernity. All, you know, all discussions of modernity have um, seized on this fact that the world is thrown upside down every single day. Uh, and, and it's very chaotic and confusing. That is the nature of modernity. Um, but why, but in previous eras, there were meta narratives which allowed people to explain it, to say it's capitalism, or it is um, bureaucratization, or it is uh, you know whatever oh, the various different. So I'm not going to go through all the possibilities of social theory, but you know they basically say explain um, logically what it is that underpins all this, what makes the system work, and I think polycrisis evades that and just kind of goes well there's just stuff going on everywhere and tries to as phil said you know through erudition trying to go and connect um all these things i think this kind of underscores um that we have today modernity without enlightenment um you have all the turbulence of modernity but without the intellectual mm -hmm. ambition um, and even disposition to see things systematically and through kind of to tell a grand story about how the world works. And so you end up with something like polycrisis. I also think as a, as a yeah. second point, and I, mm. I'm, I'll stop there, is that there's a political use um, to it, you know, that polycrisis is put to, and it's why kind of like World Economic Forum adopts it. But we'll come to that in a second. Go ahead, George. No, I was just, I was just going to agree with the two of you. It seems like polycrisis is a very useful concept for a you know, for a world that doesn't have a, a model of society or a Marxist model of society. So there are, things are connected to each other, but there's, you know, there is some kind of probably vague 
understanding. Sorry, not in Adam Tooze's case, but in maybe some people who who use this um, concept a bit more indiscriminately, that political economy or is, is somehow very very important. Um, but there is no kind of even a basic kind of you know that kind of basin superstructure type model. I wouldn't say in that in that concept. Instead, it's a very good concept for a kind of in some ways a kind of flattened model of society and a, a kind of ft um view of the world where there is you know clearly you know political economy is there and world events happen but do you have that underlying um reservoir of like all of these models of society or rationalization yeah, and, or and it doesn't just need to whatever. be um, more it doesn't yeah. just need to be marxist i think you know a, even a kind of christian conservative might have said you know in, in the 1960s like an age of which was understood at the time as being like an age of crisis um been able to provide some sort of answer as to why why this is happening right um not mm-hmm. just be like oh it's poly crisis but say like well it's because we've <laughs> forgotten god or you know we've <laughs> we've we've uh, we've abandoned deference um you know yeah there is there is whatever there is something about that without the meta narratives without like the all the different competing individual gods <laughs> um you just have the, the pantheon comes back <laughs> in a way and so nice. you have all the all the the, the the little crisis gods that you have the little shrines to maybe i don't know whatever view of the world yeah no but i think there's one just one other um i think intellectual um route to kind of poly crisis type of thinking and i think that's ecology and and risk um and you know you can refer to the work of like ulrich beck and kind of risk society um which underpins a lot of this i think whether explicitly or, or implicitly more likely um which is that um the society is understood kind of ecologically in terms of feedback loops, in terms of interventions, which have a certain degree of risk, which bear with them, um, which can explode in your face. And then this causes, you know, you, you kill off all the frogs and then there's no one eating the flies. And then because there's no flies, the, you know, the spiders go hungry and then there's no webs, which means there's no, uh, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, it's like kind of an ecological conception of, of the world where risk, it plays a very important part. And like the old homeostasis has been um, broken up. Now, what's, what's interesting is that that ecological vision of society gets parlayed into this polycrisis idea. Polycrisis itself talks about constantly about how climate interacts with um, economy or interacts with politics, which it does. I don't want to say that, you know, kind of the, the natural environment is completely separate from society. We, we That isn't the case. Um, but I think the, the issue is more the, the first thing I was talking about, which is that intellectually there's a set there's no real under so really true social understanding it's an ecological understanding of society which i think is is the part of the yeah the problem of of, of the polycrisis understanding of things yeah no i think that is that is right the, the contemporary kind of understanding of crisis is one that's very close to risk disaster management you know that sort of thing risk and disaster reduction all those sorts of things that's that's like a very we can mitigate, you know, we can have a, we can have a kind of a risk and crisis register and have all of our mitigating actions and reduce the impact of all of these things. That kind of very, you know, that's a, but also resilience, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. You know, like the the resilient, yeah, the resilient kind of actor, resilient network, resilient institution, resilient society has already kind of uh, preemptively absorbed the possibilities of all of these shocks and changes. And therefore there is actually, you know, in a sense, it's kind of, um, there's no need to, um, you know, to actually deal with them at source. 
or to kind of mount any set or to make an effort at any uh, qualitative systemic or radical transformation because resilience has been built in responsiveness and adaptation has already been built into the system yeah no it's a it's mm. a good it's a good point it's responding to the continual crises rather than doing something uh proactive about it because you know who wouldn't want to be more resilient if there's too many fires just you know toughen up your skin and become fireproof that sort of thing and um, that's it there's always, it's always tacit like how do we return to the old homeostasis right like in this kind of more ecological model of society you know things were in balance now because there's been interventions of different sort things are out of whack um and so you have a poly crisis where things are compounding on another and we just need to keep this plate spinning and you know equilibrate things there's no it's not like society's dynamic and historical progressing through time but also having achieving progress social progress moral progress where in the old conception you know you would have uh, the old kind of modernist conception you'd have progress and you would have crises which then be overcome and through the overcoming of that crisis you're led to a higher stage of society a better society and that doesn't need again doesn't need to be a marxist or socialist conception it might could well be a liberal one um of various stripes um and that isn't on the cards. There's no conception of crisis. It's more just let's manage the poly crisis to attenuate it, to build resilience so we can, you know, the, the spaceship which is flying through this crazy world can just kind of keep from tipping over. But there's no sense of progress there. You're not achieving anything. You're not moving um, on to, to a new stage. So I think that's yeah. what, yeah. Maybe, maybe that is exactly it, that that's the fundamental difference in how we understand crisis today is that we don't have any faith that it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to any transformation. Like we... Like it's almost returning to that Adorno point. Like we maybe still believe that the that the um, <laughs> the crisis is going to kill the patient or the patient is going to recover, but in fact, like the patient is just like a zombie now, and we're all mm. those zombies. We've recovered, but we still are terminally ill or something like that. No, but yeah, no, I mean that's that's it, right? No meta narratives. So crisis is a bit <laughs> a bit less um, consequential because it turns out you can just continue to like not resolve it. Yeah, I mean, at, at a more um, in kind of practical, political and instrumental level, there's also the uses to which polycrisis is put and why um, kind of various elites have now drawn upon it. Because, you know, I, I made a note to myself, like, didn't elites used to say it's all OK? Wasn't that especially kind of from sitting governments, you know, they would get say it's all everything's under control. Everything's all right. And now the discourse is much more like, look, everything is is very serious. We're in a serious crisis and these are the measures that will need to be taken. Um, but we're not going to explicitly say what they are. <laughs> we're just going to keep it to ourselves. I don't know. That's quite right. It, so before like, you know, it would be like, uh, go home. Everything's under control. We'll look after it. Whereas now, like the situation is really terrible um, and you've got to how does it work? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there is something yeah. different. So it's like the situation there, there is no political damage to admitting the scale of the catastrophe mm. that they oversee. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no political damage to it. At the same time, there is tremendous need to kind of manipulate the discourse and information management and control of the narrative and all of that. As I discovered uh, to my, um, uh, I wouldn't want to say my surprise because it wasn't surprising, but nonetheless, it was a discovery in the last two weeks or so, as listeners will see on the uh, newsletter, those who who uh, you took had, a look what, at it. You had your discourse manipulated. Is this, is this what happened to you? That's one That's one way to put it, yeah. I was um, at the receiving end of uh, discourse manipulation. Anyway, um, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like there is something different, right? It's like either in the past it would be, you no, know, there's nothing, nothing to worry about. 
we're, you know, it's all fine. It's all fine. Go home. We'll look after it. Whereas now it's like, everything is terrible. It's all falling apart. Um, we need, and what is, I mean, how do they, what do they, you know, they, they, they say we'll, they say we'll look after it, but it seems, it's like they still won't solve it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's no solving. It's just, we need these emergency powers. This is the new way of the world. Um, and I mean, again, it's a kind of, there's a clear anti-democratic thrust to it. Um, we don't, we can't just be debating this stuff. Um, like in the old ways, things are too turbulent and chaotic now. Um, but it's, I think maybe we should discuss this more directly at some other point because. Yeah, we definitely should. Yeah. Um, and I think it, so that the, because the legitimacy, you know, is not based on solving problems anymore at, at, at all. Um, you know, Legitimacy for a long time hasn't been based on um, actually managing the economy, providing full employment, things like that. That's all, or as we know very well, um, has been gone for 40 years. But legitimacy still did rest to a certain extent on kind of problem solving, making sure that the market functioned properly, just intervening in light touch here where, where needed. Um, and now I think the, the crisis of neoliberalism has pushed us into a different um, era, I think, where the crisis is drawn attention to as we've been saying don't it's not things aren't okay things are really bad um and i think the le- legitimacy rests on that kind of sense of permanent crisis and indeed maybe permanent emergency mm-hmm. which which you know it's always- I, I, it's not a novel point actually because people were making that point in the wake of 911 um yeah. so it's it's not no it's not completely novel but i think it's become much more kind of generalized yeah maybe it's like a vibes theory of legitimacy so it's not about problem solving it's about having the right disposition of taking things seriously and yes being, i and think having, that's right and having mm. gravitas yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. but don't you know but not being held to account for actually solving these, these yeah don't actually Wait, ask like way... why that bridge collapsed like we're not actually going to rebuild that bridge we, we just need it's to be avoiding, aware of like, yeah but it's actually it's a way of avoiding accountability i mean that's the point right so you stave yes. off yeah. you stave off accountability through emergency um and it doesn't generate, it's not that it's used to generate legitimacy so much, but it's a way of deflecting of deflecting accountability. We can't think about this or deal with it. Bec- oh, sorry, we can't, you can't hold us to account for this because we're too busy dealing with it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, any, a great place to leave this discussion of uh, Jürgen Habermas's legitimation crisis. Um, but this isn't the end of 2023's reading club, is it, Phil? <laughs> Phil. No, next up is oh, going oh, to Alex. be. <laughs> but Phil. No, well, case. next up. So next up is we're going to be looking at um, Adam Smith in Beijing, which is Giovanni, one of the world system theorists, one of the uh, grand old men of world system theory, Giovanni Origi. It's his book from a while back, looking at the precipitous rise of China before you know, well before uh, China kind of uh, reached um, purchasing power parity, at least with the US. Um, as it did a while back. So it's looking at the effect of uh, Chinese economic growth on the world system. And so we thought it was a useful, it would be a useful exercise for the purposes of this group to revisit kind of what was a, now that we seem to be in, you know, into new era or unipolarity seems to be over and industrial geopolitical competition, technological competition with China is a real thing rather than just something in the future. We thought it would be worth revisiting um, 
an analysis of that that was prospective, that was looking forward to it and thinking in terms of the development of capitalism rather than just geopolitical rivalry between two separate states. Um, so that will be the next. That will be next up, and the breakdown of the readings and relevant dates and what have you um, will be available through my good friend Alex. Yes, we'll be we'll we'll be letting you know, uh, dear patrons, dear inner circle of patrons who are subscribed to the Reading Club. We it's it's not it's not like yeah. secret information. Like we're going to read no. the whole book. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, got to we'll, leave we'll, a little we'll bit mystery. We'll tell you which parts are, 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 are will, will be coming when um, we're recording the, the the episode kind of later this month. Um, so uh, you can look forward to that episode then. But yeah, the book's Adam Smith in Beijing. If you want to follow along, um, most likely, I think we haven't exactly broken it down, but you know, introduction and, and first chapter most likely um, for for the next one in a, in around a, a little bit less than a month's time. If you want to follow along, and of course, send in your questions, uh, send in any comments, any comments about this as well. Um, I personally have found it super useful going back through Habermas um, and also through the book we did at the beginning of the year, um, This Life by Martin Hagland, and I'm super looking forward to, to uh, Giovanni Origi. So um, let us know, again, what, what you found of this. Um, lots of people are subscribed to this and, and seem to take a lot from it, um, and we'd like to hear more from you um, to know how you're, how you're finding it, whether you're finding it um, useful, how you, you want more depth, you want less depth, you want more extrapolations, you want to stick to the text, whatever. Um, let us know. And uh, anyway, we enjoyed doing it, so we hope you enjoy listening to it. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for being with us, and we'll be back uh, with another Reading Club in a month. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.